Welcome to the Living a Life Unleashed podcast. Welcome to the Living a Life Unleashed podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Bishop, and I am glad that you tuned in because our time together on these podcasts is meant to help you grow. And my hope is that our time together will equip you and compel you to live a life that is unhindered and unleashed and that you play full out and live fully into who you were created to be. On our show today, I have invited Steve Weens, and he's going to talk about his latest book, Whole, Restoring What is Broken in Me, you, and the entire world. I believe that our journey to living a life unleashed, in that journey, we really need to seek restoration of broken places to live more fully. And so I'm glad that Steve is on the show today. A little bit about Steve. He's a pastor, and in addition to pastoring his church in Minnesota, he's also the author of the book Beginnings, in addition to his second book, Whole, that we're going to be talking about today. And Steve has a weekly podcast called This Good Word. I've listened to it, and it's full of truth and valuable insight and humor. Steve is married to Mary, who he describes as a wise woman who knows how to laugh. Sounds like a keeper to me. And he and Mary have three sons, Isaac, Benjamin, and Elijah. Well, Steve, welcome to the show. Lisa, thanks so much for having me. And I love the title of your podcast, Living a Life Unleashed. Uh, that is so evocative. So thanks for having me. This is fun. Thank- Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited because a good friend of mine connected us, and I was rereading the email introduction that she made about a month or so back, and she described you as an author whose writing is beautiful, thoughtful, and poetic. And then she went on to say that what she thought that I would most appreciate about you is that you keep life real. And I'm like, she is totally right. (laughs) She is totally right. Keeping life real is such a high value for me. And Steve, after reading your book, I can see that that is a high value for you too. So I just want to thank you in advance for the degree of vulnerability and authenticity with which you write, because I think it makes you relatable and it really opens readers' minds and hearts to be receptive and teachable. Wow. Thank you, Lisa. That's a high, high honor. Uh, yeah. Encouragement. So I will receive that and I'll say Good. thank you. Thank you. And I loved your book. We were chatting a little bit before uh, the podcast. I just loved your book whole. And to be honest with you, I felt like you wrote some of it just for me. <laughs> <laughs> really, it, it was just, I, I have a book in my hand here and I, I can't loan it to anybody because I've got so many notes in it and I, I think it would be almost unreadable. And I'm, I'm just curious, what is it that prompted you to write the book and what is your greatest desire? for your readers? Great question. Um, you know, I, so I have written a couple of books and, um, I pay, I try, try, I try to pay attention to the ideas that won't go away. And so a lot of the times for me, an idea comes when something either breaks my heart or really mm. makes me angry. Um, so I try to, I try to notice what those things are. Uh, and then, um, and then I play around with the ideas. And so I, um, I've been following the refugee crisis in Syria for quite a few years now. And there was a moment, uh, actually when I was, when I was writing this book that I, and lots of people saw this on, on the internet, it went viral, but 
there was a video that many of us saw of this little about five-year-old boy Mm. that was pulled out of a building that had been bombed in Damascus. And he was put into this ambulance. Uh, I remember the orange seats. And he just looked completely stunned. He was totally Mm. alone. Blood on one side of his face and dust on the other side of his face and hair was all matted. And he reached up with his hand and touched his bloody face and then wiped it off on the orange seat. And something in that picture, and I'd already started writing the book, but something in that video uh, cemented something in me that that the brokenness that we see all around the world now that we're connected to it in, in, in ways we don't even know. And so um, I believe with all of my heart that the wholeness, the restoration that, that God is doing at all times, God is always at all times making all things new. That's one of my bedrock beliefs. And that's, um, so the wholeness that God is trying to do in the world, we're, we're connected to that. But that means that the brokenness that's in the world, uh, that we're connected to that, even if we don't realize it, even if we haven't heard of, and many of us have heard of the refugee crisis, but there's so many other things. And so um, this book is really my manifesto of hope in a time that we're seeing so much isolation. uh, We're seeing so much polarization Everyone seems to be running to one side or another, the right, the left, progressives, Mm. conservatives. Uh, The church is facing a huge uh, turning in terms of historically. Uh, The church is changing and people are responding to that in many different ways. People are leaving the church. People are planting churches. People are churches are dying. All those things are happening. And um, so I wanted to write a collection of stories from my own life and from the scriptures that painted a picture that uh, restoration is possible. We don't need to pretend that it's not as dark as it is. It, it, it really is broken. Um, but it's only by really getting honest with how maybe broken our own stories are uh, that we can begin to walk toward wholeness and healing. So my greatest hope, I think, for the readers is that they would uh, connect in a in a deep and personal way to one of the stories, uh, and that they would have some hope that healing and restoration is not only possible, but it's at the very center of the heartbeat of God. Not filled with wrath. God is not angry. God is hopeful, compassionate, and always at work, always making all things new. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I, I love what you talk about in your, your book is that, you know, if we want the world to experience more wholeness, more restoration, that it really does start with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you start you start the book with a um, what you would say is nerve wracking story about your son <laughs> almost uh, getting really hurt, and I'm just curious of of all the stories that you could have opened up your book with. What why did you pick that one? So the story is uh, my son Isaac is now ten, but when he was about one and a half, he came 
toddling over to me and Mary, my wife. We were having coffee at the kitchen table. You know, one-year-olds always have things in their mouth. I mean, they're, they're, oh, yeah. everything goes in the mouth, uh, <laughs> right? So I, I noticed he had something in his mouth. I reached my finger into his mouth, and I pulled out a jagged piece of glass about the size of a quarter. Oh, that's scary. Oh my gosh, we were totally freaked out. Yeah, um, and this is our first, you know, our first kid. I mean, maybe third kid. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you're like, mm. <laughs> I mean, jagged glass would probably concern me no matter. Uh, this is our first baby, and we were freaked out. And but then, I mean, I really realized that uh, I I knew where that jagged glass had come from because I'd hmm. seen it the day before, wedged in between the refrigerator and the wall, and it was there because. Uh, one of us had dropped a big glass bowl, and you know how that goes. You you, you break out the vacuum, you get this, you get the uh, the broom out, and you try to you try to get every piece, but you yeah. certainly will miss a few. But I had seen this piece in between the uh, wall and the refrigerator, and I didn't I didn't get it out of there. I don't know why hmm. I didn't get it out of there. I, maybe I was tired, but Isaac, uh, this vulnerable kid found it, put it in his mouth and almost got really hurt. And that just, that just became for me a picture and a metaphor, kind of a parable of what happens to the most vulnerable in our world, that glass gets shattered, pieces are everywhere. And when they're not dealt with, when they're not Mm. picked up, they end up really hurting people. And we all are victims of that as well as perpetrators of that. Yeah. So that's, and and so that metaphor, um, of brokenness and the hope of wholeness, uh, I just, you know, when, when that dropped in the slot for me, I knew that's how I had to start the book. And every time I tell that story, um, it's just a universal response. People gasp uh, like, Oh my gosh. You know, but we, we, and I'm not saying this to elicit any kind of guilt or shame. I am the same. But it's like the further we're away from really vulnerable uh, people experiencing devastating levels of um, jagged glass, um, if we don't see it, we don't, we don't know and we don't have that. <gasps> I mean, we would do something if we knew. You know? Right, uh, right. So, so some of it also is this, this book is, a, is a, I think, a gentle invitation for us all to be involved in the restoration of all things and not to be heroes, but to see where it is that vulnerable people have swallowed jagged glass and, um, and maybe to do some small things to perhaps fix that. And to see our own vulnerability too, right? I wanted to actually in your your first chapter, it's it's called Where Are You? You talk about things that keep us from looking within ourselves. So you're talking now about, you know, we need to be kind of open and aware and seeing what's happened in the, the lives of other people. You also talk, you know, about this idea of looking within ourselves and that there are things that we want to avoid confronting on our journey to wholeness in a way. Things that we just are like, ugh. You know, I don't really want to look at that. I don't want to address that. And specifically, I want to just read an excerpt from your book, because one of the gifts that you have is uh, the gift of humor as you tell stories. And I, frankly, you know what? Truth goes down a lot easier sometimes, and there's some humor um, <laughs> along with some, you know, just uh, authenticity. Yeah. 
thrown in there, but I just, if it's okay, I wanted to read this excerpt. Uh, it starts on page two, and you talk about in 1980, your very Baptist family <laughs> somehow came into the possession of a record by the soft rock duo Air Supply. Can I just say that a lot of our listeners um, probably will not know who Air Supply is, so I'm just inviting you to Google Air Supply, you guys. You're going to see what you missed out on by growing up in, you know, you know, the seventies, eighties and beyond. I loved air supply, by the way. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So you said, I'm pretty sure we weren't allowed to have those kind of albums in our house, so to speak. But you said, I played that record over and over again, singing loudly along with the melancholy melodies, all of which were designed for the heartbroken, which I'm like, why do we like push play on misery, these songs that just keep us in those places. Anyway, you say, I wonder what sadness I was trying to express by singing those songs. I was nine years old, and apparently I was all out of love. We've all experienced times in childhood when parts of ourselves felt exposed, when we needed someone to help us through something sad, terrible, or confusing, and these orphan parts of ourselves end up lost and we have no idea how to get anywhere in the world. I believe that those orphan parts of me were raised by immature older siblings' approval and admiration who taught me I'd survive only if I'd continually achieve enviable levels of success and admiration. I'd keep producing success because the alternative was to look inside myself, which would be terrifying. Approval and admiration said I'd always need lots and lots of success and positive feedback to hide my very real insecurity. So tell us a little bit about this idea idea of looking inside ourselves, this idea of, you know, wanting to hide our very real insecurity and why those things are important in our journey to restoration and wholeness. Wow. Yeah. So, um, when I talk about being raised by, uh, these immature older siblings, approval and admiration, I think we all have our program for happiness and program for survival even. And those mm. that it's, it's not even bad when we're kids. I mean, I think, uh, some of us grow up in, grew up in abusive situations. Some of us, uh, were neglected as kids. Some of us had disabilities as kids, which made us internalize messages about who we are and who we weren't. And I certainly had some of those things. I grew up stuttering pretty badly. Mm. And so I always had a real defective view of myself in terms of how n- not smart I was. Hmm. Uh, I wasn't very good in school. Uh, I, I was decent at athletics, but uh, not at first, as you'll read in the story. My very <laughs> first, I think I wrote about it in this chapter, my very first baseball game, I struck out four times, which is actually pretty hard to do. Um, and so um, I, we all come up with a strategy to survive. And my strategy to survive was, as you read, to be as successful and admirable. Uh, And and that's a very, I I thought a lot about what word to choose there. But if you want to be admired, uh, that means, you know, maybe you have a lot of followers on Twitter or a lot of people read your books or there's any number of ways to try to be admired. But if you want to be admired, you have to you have to actually trade that for being known. Um, because when you're admired, you when you want to be admired, you even unconsciously uh, you don't share the things that would really make people like the real things in your life that maybe are ugly and broken and <laughs> really not right. enviable 
at all. You, you, don't, you don't share those things, even with people who love you, even with people who wouldn't reject you because of that. Right. It's kind of like if they really knew that part about me, that's the thing that's going to make them hightail it out of my life. And so we, we don't really want to be that vulnerable because people won't stick around possibly. They won't admire us. Exactly. And so that's why, I mean, you, you, can, you actually can get people to admire you. I, mean, mm. I have done that in my life. If you know the Enneagram or if any leaders know the Enneagram, I'm a three, which means that, um, again, my program for satisfaction or happiness is to keep producing, keep succeeding, and keep being better than everybody else. <laughs> the ironic thing is my deep desire truly is to be loved and to be known for who yeah. I really am. Not, you know, not the platform, not the author, not the, um, but to the, to the degree that I keep choosing to be admired over known and loved, um, I will be lonelier and lonelier. So when we talk about looking inward and we talk about hiding, uh, the very first question that God asks Adam and Eve after they sin in the garden is, where are you? And I find that to be that's how I start the book, but that's that I find that to be the most delicious question that God could ask us when we are maybe covered in shame because of a bad choice. Uh, because all of us are hiding. I mean, to right. one degree or another, uh, we all have varying degrees of vulnerability, varying degrees of things that we're willing to show, and that's probably wise. You know, you don't want to say everything to everyone. Vulnerability right. is not just like barfing <laughs> your truth, it's having the courage to own your story, right? And your whole story, meaning uh, like I was just, I mean, I won't share uh, the details, but I was just, I see a spiritual director. It's part of my, um, it's part of my strategy to stay sane as a pastor and as an author. And so a spiritual director is someone who just listens to you and listens to God and tries to help you to see what God is doing in your life. And there was a thing and, and so they're completely safe. They're never going to tell anybody about anything you, you tell them. But there was a mm-hmm. thing I didn't want to tell him. <laughs> and really and why, why was that? What was going on? You're just... Oh, because, oh my gosh, even though I know that environment is not, that is not an environment where, you know, I, I, I want someone to admire me. But be, it, 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 that same old message was, if I tell him this, he's really going to think much less of me. And this is how insidious this is. Because again, I'm, I mean, essentially, it's like if you're Catholic, it's like seeing a confessor. You're actually there to say those things, you know, to, to maybe move towards some wholeness and healing. But again, like this thing of if you, if you want to be admired, you can be. But you will trade that for being known. And so mm-hmm. I ended up telling oh, him, and he w- because he's known me for a long time, um, he was beautiful and gracious, and it was really good. But my gosh, you know, like that's the degree to which it gets funky. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, so doing our own work is having the courage to own our own story, having the courage to name those places that we are really still hiding and then having the courage to get invited out of that hiding place, which is very scary and very risky because many of us 
It's like, remember that whack-a-mole game? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I, I totally, I was just talking about that the other day. The mole keeps <laughs> popping up and you're whacking it and it's like, ah, yes. <laughs> exactly, right? And so uh, we're afraid that that's going to happen. And we're afraid that's going to happen because it has happened, right? I mean, that, that we're not making that up. Like when you share your real story, some people really do knock you down. And so mm-hmm. the invitation is to keep doing it with safe people because that's the, that's the first, that's, that really is always the first move toward wholeness is coming out of hiding. Yeah. And I love that you reiterated safe people. And then early on, I, I remember a friend telling me, you know, kind of the world is all about authenticity these days, but we've made authenticity mean, like you said, like puking everything out. Authenticity isn't saying everything that's no. on our mind all the time, no. right? There is a level of discernment and wisdom that we have around that. And, and you've said this word vulnerability a few times. And one of the things that I appreciate about your book is, and one thing that I try and just keep in my mind and the, the goal of this podcast. And, and other things I'm involved in is, is that the things that we talk about aren't just, or the things that we ingest aren't just information, but they lead to transformation. Yeah. And so one of the things that you did so well in your book is at the end, you had really thought and heart provoking questions at the un- end of every chapter. And, and one of the questions for chapter one is you ask your readers to finish the sentence and explain their answer. Vulnerability is blank, fill in the blank. And it's funny because you actually, in your description of, uh, or talking about vulnerability, use two words that I wrote down. And my answers were vulnerability is scary, risky, but necessary to freedom. Yeah. Wow. I love that, Lisa. Scary, right? Scary, risky, risky, but necessary for freedom. Necessary to freedom. And then one of the questions that you pose, you say, are you willing to walk toward vulnerability so that you can go on a journey of restoration or will you remain hidden? And that's a choice we have to make. Yeah. I, I, and, and I think it's a choice we have to make over and over again. Yes. Uh, it isn't just one time. Like now right. we're vulnerable. <laughs> no, there's new layers of it almost, I would say. It's like, ooh, there's another layer of vulnerability. And, you know, we just keep coming out of hiding. You know, uh, there's an author and there's a man named Jean Vanier. Uh, mm-hmm. And do you know Jean Vanier and, and his work? You know what? I don't. So he started the L'Arche uh, movement and uh, these homes. Uh, now there's hundreds of them all over the world, but they're homes for people with profound mental and physical disabilities. And um, Henry Nowen ended up uh, living in one of them. He writes about that in some of his work, but he was influenced by this man, Jean Vanier. And Jean Vanier wrote this thing, I can't remember where, but he said, if God is love, then God must be the most vulnerable being in the universe. And that is that has struck me. That has stayed with me because mm. love to to be vulnerable is to open yourself up like whack a mole to get oh, yeah. over and over mm. again. And I'm not talking about being a doormat and just, you know having no boundaries, being codependent. I'm not talking about that at all. But like I was in, uh, I'm a pastor, as you said, and I was in a staff meeting uh, two days ago. And some people were saying some things and I was having some reactions to those things. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just kind of, we'll let the listeners just kind of Imagine. create that picture. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I had a choice, you know, um, am I going to be vulnerable and say, not like, not just react, right? Because 
that's not necessarily vulnerability, but am I going to internally find my truth and then am I going to have the courage to say it? And I, I chose to, I don't always, right? Because we're not perfect in this, but, but it really, what it really was, what was needed for our team uh, and, and for me to move forward. Otherwise, if I didn't say it, I would have gone home after that meeting and I would have replayed that conversation over and over again in my mind and I would have created realities. You know how we do this? Yeah. Like someone says this, says something, and then we assume we know what they what they meant, but we really don't. And then because we're a little off in our assumption, then it grows in our mind and it becomes something completely different. But then we assume that that is what reality was. And we assume that now our our thing that has grown in our minds for the last 24 hours is actually the thing that they said. <laughs> and, it, and then I'm, and then I'm having these conversations with them, but really me, but it's, they're not in the room and we're having this very, this monstrous dialogue yeah. about what just happened. Oh my goodness. I think yeah. we all can relate to that. So it really, it causes me to think too, is what is at risk if we don't seek restoration and wholeness? What would you say to that? What's at risk? Well, I think about something Lynn Heibel said. Lynn is also in Chicago. Um, I've had her on my podcast a couple times. We've become friends. And she has done a lot of really courageous work in the Middle East and other places in Africa with people that are really vulnerable. And she said, the, when, when you uh, experience something that breaks your heart or that makes you mad, you really have one of two options. You can ignore it and stuff it down. And that really can work. I mean, like, if you try hard, you can sort of act like you never felt that or saw that. The other option, um, but, but she says if you choose that, you become less and less human. So, like, if I, was, if I hadn't have said that uh, vulnerable comment in the staff meeting two days ago, that's okay. That's an okay choice. Um, but that little choice, I'm just a little less human to myself and to the people that I work with. They're wondering, yeah. they're intuitive. What was Ween's thinking when I said those things? He didn't say anything. But she said the other option then is to follow it all the way down and uh, feel all the feelings. And that takes tremendous courage, tremendous energy. But... Um, and it's risky, scary, necessary for freedom. I love that. I'm going to remember that and write that down, Lisa. But that is the only way to move toward personal restoration and global restoration. So to answer your question, if we don't follow that path, I think, and this may sound dramatic, but um, a series of choices that where we don't choose restoration, don't choose vulnerability, we become less and less connected to our heart, less yes. and less connected to God, less and less connected to other people. And that is the very definition of hell. That's isolation. And I, I, I know that sounds that sounds dramatic. On the other hand, I, I, I actually do think that is what happens when we don't do the courageous work of moving toward restoration. Yeah, and I would agree with you. And, and you mentioned the word connection, which was resonating in my head as well. And just thinking about some of the relationships that I hold dear. And uh, a friend of mine, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a miscommunication. Let's just put it that way. And in that moment, I was like, you know, I'm not going to lean into this anymore because I'm so afraid of risking the relationship if I continue to be vulnerable. But then also realizing that, you know what? 
you have to lean into conflict. You have to lean into misunderstanding that, you know, the journey to restoration can be scary because we feel threatened in some ways, you know, you know, real or perceived like my, my ego, my value, my identity, my worth, but that we were desired or we were designed to love God. We were designed to love others and be connected. And that we, to, in order to have that, I love that you said, in order to have that connection, we, we have got to dive into this process of restoration and wholeness. Let's switch gears just a little bit. One of the things that you talk about in your book is the law of scarcity. And something popped out to me. You mentioned trusting God to give us the really good stuff. So I just wanted to kind of pitch the question out to you. What do you think the connection is to this idea of law of scarcity, this idea of trusting God to give us the good stuff? What's the connection with that and the journey to wholeness? Wow. Love your questions, Lisa. Let's just, let's just say that out loud. They're so good. (laughs) Um, So, okay. We've all been at a dinner party and not dinner party. Think like movie night with some friends. Love those. And there are maybe five people there, and you order a large pizza. Um, so five people, 12 pieces, and you start doing the math in your mind. Now, maybe you don't, but I do. And I go, mm-hmm. okay, how many pieces can I get? Okay, so it's like if I have three, then not everybody can have three. Two, so I'm going to start with two. So I'll take my two, and then you'll take your two, and then... There's five people, so everyone takes their two, and there's two pieces left. And dang it, who's going to get those last two pieces? And everyone's polite, and so no one's going to take that. You know, maybe someone will take the one piece, mm-hmm. but no one's going no to take that last piece. <laughs> well, can we just, let me just say, I would have intercepted the driver and taken a piece out of the box before yeah. it got to the table. And what does that say about me? Everyone has, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, that's a funny little little thing, but but... But I do think, um, so the law of scarcity says that there is a limited amount of love, a limited amount of restoration, a limited mm-hmm. amount of resources to go around. And the people that get them um, maybe will get enough, but it probably means that you're not going to get enough. And I think this is core to Western American Christianity. We've been taught to give and give and give and give. And to burn ourselves out and to do it no matter what. And uh, even if you're completely lost and lonely and empty and burned up and dried out, uh, Mm. God will see you as a good, beautiful saint and person because you gave it all away. And that's the way, if you lose your life, that's the only way to gain it. You know, Jesus said it himself. And so, um, so scarcity, um, is a mindset that uh, once the pot of soup is empty, Mm -hmm. there is no more soup. And there's Mm -hmm. not enough soup. There's not enough pizza. And this is really a sad paradigm because, um, you know, if we learn anything from the teachings of Jesus, you know, his first miracle for crying out loud was to turn uh, 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of wine, you know? Right, right. It's this beautiful picture (laughs) of abundance. So, and Brene Brown says this beautiful thing about scarcity. Um, She says, actually, abundance is not the antidote to scarcity. She says, enough is the antidote to scarcity. Hmm. Enough. 
sometimes we talk about abundance and I love abundance. I love the idea of, you know, so much pizza that no one would ever go (laughs) hungry at all. But there's a way in which we can get a little, um, like oversaturated, oversimulated over, uh, there's a, sometimes there can be, um, there can be kind of a level of, uh, we don't even know what to do with abundance. So, so the law of scarcity says that there's never going to be enough. The law of scarcity says that, um, I'm not going to get enough, but if we read the gospels, um, I, as I read them, Jesus is always giving people what they Mm. ask for and what Mm. they need. Right. Mm. So sometimes the rich young ruler asks Jesus, Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Oh, all you got to do is follow the commandments, you know, which is a very Mm. Jesus thing to say. Uh, and the guy says, awesome. I've done that since I was a child. And Jesus said, great, you're doing awesome. Uh, just one more thing. You sell all you have and give to the poor. Mm. And then we read that he walked away sad. But we also read that Jesus looked on this guy with deep compassion, really loved this guy. And there's a number of ways to misread this. We can read it as, okay, everyone needs to sell all they have and give to the poor. And if you don't, you're a terrible Christian and (laughs) you're not worthy of God. Or you can read it as like, this is what this person needed to hear from Jesus. And what do you need to hear from Jesus? What what do you, and, and Jesus will give you what you need will ask you the questions that will drive you to what you need, and there will be enough. Um, now, you may have to go on a journey to get it. Not, you know, it, it's, it's, it's typically not you know, uh, given to you right then. Uh, so that's what I mean by, by, by the law of scarcity and the dangerous belief that there might be enough for me. Because in my experience, I have experienced God as far away. I've been angry with God. I have been, I felt abandoned by God. But at the, mm. but at the end of the day, I have to say, as, as a 46-year-old man, um, I, God has never not given me what I needed. Amen. Amen. And yeah, I, I love what's going to say. I love that distinction between God gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want, yeah. um, but, but he gives us what we need in this idea that trusting that God is, as the word even says, he withhold no, withholds no good thing from us, but our circumstances can trick us into thinking that that is not true, but he, he doesn't withhold anything good. And I just, I just love this idea that God does want to give us a really good stuff and that he wants to give us the things that we need. And that when we live in this idea of a scarcity mentality, and I think you even mentioned this in the book, is that it affects our relationships with other people because we find ourselves not wanting others to flourish, not wanting others to necessarily have good things. And maybe we're not willing to admit that, but I think all of us at some point have had that feeling of, call it jealousy or whatever the case is. Wow, if she's successful, if he's successful, if he gets that, there's not going be enough for me, but that's not how God operates. That's not God's economy. Exactly. Like, have you ever had, Lisa, have you ever had someone like when you say, oh man, I'm going on vacation, maybe I'm going to Hawaii, you know, and then a friend says, Ooh, must be nice. (laughs) Yeah. And you kind of have to swallow this little like, Oh geez. Um, let's, let's break up with friends who consistently say must be nice. Hmm. Um, or, or at the very least challenge that to say, you know what, can I, can I just stop you right there? 
Um, what I hear you saying, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be defensive, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but you've said this a couple different times. When I express to you something good that's happening in my life, I got you know some good book sales, or you know I got a job promotion, or I'm going on vacation, and, and you, you you've said this a couple of times. Must be nice. That makes me feel devalued. That makes me not want to share anything with you. It makes me feel like you're treating me like I'm special or lucky or. And can we talk about that? Can you either stop doing that, or can we talk about why you're doing that? Um, you know what I mean? I mean, this is such a little yeah. thing, but let's not be like, let's celebrate with, we can celebrate with people who are, who are, um, experiencing good in their life. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that, um, we have to also be experiencing good. We can be experiencing pain and that may, maybe sucks, but I've never felt better about myself when I have tried to shoot someone down to my level. <laughs> You know, mm, right? <laughs> it just never works. Now I felt I have felt empathy when someone says to me, "Oh man, me too. I'm, I'm having a bad day." Oh, okay. you know, but but I've never felt better when I've had to pull someone down to my, <laughs> my level, right? Know? And that's just an indication of a like some false belief or some area in us that we need to poke into and say, like, why am I responding that way? Like, what part of me needs to be healed and restored that wouldn't have overflowing joy yeah. for someone else who's experiencing, you know, good fortune? What in, in the time we have left, can you just talk a little bit about you, you, you write about the journey from Egypt to the wilderness to the promised land. And that was just so, it was so eye-opening for me because I think sometimes we think that if we're in the wilderness, that it's not a good thing and we don't really value that experience. So I would love for you just to talk a little bit about how do you see that journey from, you know, what quote unquote Egypt to the wilderness, to the promised land. How do you see that journey playing out in our journey of restoration? Why, why is the wilderness important? Yeah, well, first of all, the, the journey out of Egypt toward the promised land by way of the wilderness is the epic hero's journey. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the journey that every human being, every group of human beings will always take. So you can read the Bible as this literal true thing. I think most of it is literal. Um, and this story for sure, at least as far as I believe, is literal. But it's also a picture of the meta narrative of, hum- of the human experience. That we will be caught in slavery. We will be enslaved to something. Uh, and that's life in Egypt. And the word in the Hebrew for Egypt is Mitzrayim, which literally means the narrow place. So now Egypt topographically is is actually narrow, uh, like if you were to look at it on a map. Okay. But metaphorically, uh, I am in Egypt anytime I am in a place that is restraining me. That is, um, and I would say like a relationship with someone that's consistently saying to you must be nice is mm. an Egypt kind of relationship. Uh, or someone that just can't, um, the someone that's always trying to take you down, a job that is toxic, um, a relationship that you're not talking about the issues that you need to. These are all experiences of Egypt when you're okay. being restrained in a bad way. Now, there's some hmm. restraint too, obviously, um, but I'm talking about the kind of restraint that restrains your true self from coming out. Um, the good news that we read as Exodus, the book of Exodus starts, 
is that God hears the cries of God's people and God acts and God comes down and God moves towards salvation. This is why I believe this in this statement, God is always at work, always making all things new because of what we see in the Exodus. So many people know the story. Moses comes, uh, 10 plagues. Finally, the children of Israel get let out and they are on their way to the land of Canaan, a, a journey that should take just a week or so. But they end up staying there for 40 years. Oh. 40 years. That's like, oh my gosh, that's a long time. Well, it I can't is, even imagine. Yeah. And, it, you know, and they complain the whole time. One of my favorite passages in the scriptures is, as a leader is Numbers 11 when Moses says, uh, God, if, if you love me at all, kill me now. <laughs> I know. I don't want to deal with these people anymore. <laughs> I don't. I'm so done. So, um, so we all want to be rescued from Egypt, and that's a good desire. But then, typically, we want a nonstop flight to the promised land, which we think is going to be the absence of conflict, the absence of slavery, the absence of all these things. But it turns out that we need time in the wilderness so that Egypt can get out of us. And it's hmm. almost a cliche in the Christian world. We can leave Egypt in an instant but Egypt, it takes a lot longer for Egypt to leave us. And so in the wilderness, the wilderness is the place. Now, don't think like, don't think the physical wilderness, think the emotional or metaphorical wilderness. Okay. The wilderness is the place where you know where you've come from, but you don't yet know where you're going. Which we don't like that very much as human beings. So we, we want to know. It. We yeah. need it. Mm-hmm. It's after you've gotten laid off. It's after mm-hmm. you've had a miscarriage. It's after you've gotten a divorce. It is after a relationship that you uh, thought was great, you got blindsided and the person confronted you about something. It's being caught uh, in a lie. It's, it's anything that um, where you feel like the scaffolding that was holding you up is now no longer there. And you are experiencing the stark reality of... Um, of emptiness, loneliness. Now, the good news about the wilderness in the Hebrew, it's a word called midbar, and it comes from the, the root word of midbar is deber, which means to speak. So over and over again in the stories of the scriptures, we find when people end up in the wilderness, that's the place where God speaks. That's the place where God meets them because the scaffolding is gone. The false self is gone. There's no energy anymore. Do you know what I mean? There's no energy yeah. anymore to pretend that things are better than they are. Uh, right. This, this place is scary and you hate it and you don't want to be there any longer than you need to be. On the other hand, it's this huge gift when you give up trying to project the image that everything is fine. Right. The wilderness is the place yeah. where you finally say, you know what? I, I, I have no energy to pretend things are fine, to pretend I'm a good Christian, to pretend, you know. Yeah. The other thing that comes to mind to me in the wilderness too, is it's like we have a choice to make in the wilderness because I can keep grabbing at false things yes. to numb my pain, to distract me. But, you know, in the wilderness, I, would you say that there's a choice in the wilderness? We could prolong the wilderness, <laughs> uh, but I have to make a conscious choice of you're saying, you know, let go surrender and let God do what he needs to do in us, work whatever he needs to work out of us. And, you know, so that more of him is reflected, you know, in us as well, but that I I can't keep grabbing onto these, these things that give me short term false notion of being okay. 
Exactly. And if you want proof that Lisa's right, just read the story of Jesus in the, in the wilderness, but read it as though Jesus was an actual human being, which he was, uh, and read it as though it really was hard. Like the, this, this, this wasn't just Jesus like, oh, well, this is easy for me to, to fend off these temptations. I, I have to actually, you know, like I have to go through this to show people how to do it. No, Jesus really did feel the temptation of all of those things. And, you know, three opportunities to um, let go of trust in God and grab onto something that that really is alluring. Right. And and, and on one level, like, is there anything wrong with with uh, having like if you could do it from turning stones into bread? Probably not. Is there anything wrong of of sort of wanting to lead and and wanting to have power in and of itself? Probably not. But, But that was not the path. God was leading him on a different path. Of course, Jesus was God. But in this experience, he had to lean on his father. He had to lean on the spirit just like we do. And so um, you're absolutely right. We prolong the wilderness when we reach for um, false security. And and I want to say this too, though, Lisa, we, we will do this in the wilderness, right? We're not going to get an A plus in the wilderness. <laughs> right. Oh, gosh, I haven't. Right. That's for sure. Yeah. Maybe Jesus did, but I'm not going to. So I will reach for things in, in the wilderness that don't satisfy. And when you do that, the next move is to, um, to to not judge yourself too harshly, to have grace for yourself, and to say, um, you know, to ask for forgiveness, but 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 to not wallow in shame. Hmm. That's good. That's good. And I like the just the honesty that. And there will be more than one wilderness time in our lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've I've experienced um, several times of wilderness, and you know, one lasted four years, which um, you know, I'm in some ways kind of just coming out of that in the last year. But I see all the beauty and the magnificence that has happened as a result. So it's, you know, ultimately, do I trust God? Do I believe that God gives me exactly what I need so that I can? fully thrive and be who he created me to be, which when I'm, you know, to your point too, in your book, when I'm restored and when we seek restoration, which is letting God do the work that he needs to do in us, stripping things away, being in the wilderness to reveal more of our true self in him that reflects his likeness and his glory. I mean, that is a great contribution to the world, um, being healed and restored as well and being able to see God magnified in our lives. Exactly. And I think that's the path that Jesus shows us, actually. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and that's freedom, actually. So there's yeah. a, it, it feels probably at first like a bondage to give up all of our securities and all of our, you know, all of our safety blankets and all of our, the ways in which we run to admiration and approval or whatever your siblings are. But on the other side of that, there's a tremendous lightness and freedom because you no longer have to defend yourself against all these you know, accusations that the enemy or people have because you know that, that you could give them far worse ammunition mm. against yourself. Yeah, um, but that's that you're good. Okay, that, that you're okay, that there's enough, that God meets you where you are and... Um, you don't have to be all things to all people and you don't have to have all the answers. What you are is a pilgrim on a journey. You're an ordinary friend of Jesus who is traveling the path of restoration and you're receiving what you need. And that, that is what is necessary. And that is at the end of the day, what is inspiring 
to others and what will lead others to restoration, I think. I love it. And that is a great way to wrap up. I have so appreciated our time together. Thank, just thanks for who you are. Thank you for the the work that you have surrendered to God doing in your life and that the pain in the wilderness that you have gone through because you're a living example of what pursuing a restored life, you know, even this book is an outpouring of helping others on the journey to restoration as well. So I'm just really grateful for you. And, you know, you guys, I'm so glad that you've tuned in, pass this podcast on to someone that you know and love and care for as they seek their journey to restoration and go out and get Steve. Steve's book, Whole, Restoring What is Broken in Me, You, and the Entire World. Again, Steve, great to have you. And you guys, thanks again for listening. You are loved, and I can't wait to have you tune in next time. Thanks, Lisa. I really loved it. All right. Thanks so much, Steve. Steve.